Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Now, in the last two episodes of Far-Fetched, I did a dramatic reading, a two-part dramatic reading of the Star Trek The Next Generation script Timescape that was based on a story idea that I pitched to one of the producers of that show. Now, while I was preparing for that, I came across one of my very few pieces of Star Trek memorabilia. I have a lot of memorabilia in my office and in my podcasting studio, but very little of it is centered on Star Trek. I'm not really sure why, but that's that's the way it goes. But this this thing that I recovered the other day when I was looking through my stuff was something I actually won years ago through the Wisconsin State Lottery. They had a special game once that had a Star Trek The Next Generation theme. I don't know why, but I actually won that lottery. And I got this, I got this really cool prize package. The two things I remember from it were a really nicely done suede leather baseball jacket done in bright red and black Star Trek The Next Generation colors, Captain Picard's colors, in fact, command colors. So a suede baseball jacket with Starfleet <laughs> with Starfleet logo uh, on it and all sorts of goofy Star Trek stuff. And it was it was a great it was a great coat. I felt I was thrilled to win it. But I just never saw myself wearing it out in public. It was a little bit much. Um, so I gave it to a friend who was a even bigger Star Trek geek than I was, if that was possible. Uh, and she, I trust she has been wearing it uh, and getting good use out of it. I kind of kick myself someday, some days for not having hung on to that because it was kind of a cool, cool thing to have. But the other thing that came in that prize package from the Wisconsin Lottery was an original film cell, three frames of film, in fact, from the Star Trek The Next Generation fan-favorite episode, Relics. That's the one where Scotty from Star Trek The Original Series makes an appearance on Star Trek The Next Generation. He has been preserving himself in a transporter beam for years and years and years. So Scotty comes aboard the Enterprise and quickly becomes a complete pain in the ass to Geordi because Scotty's way of being an engineer and Geordi's way of being an engineer uh, are very, very different. So I've got this cool little clip of film from a scene where Scotty and Captain Picard are talking on the set of the original bridge from the original series. And it explains on the back of the... It's, it's all into this really slick uh, lucite frame. And it explains on the back that in this episode, in the context of the story, Scotty had created a replica of the bridge of the original Enterprise on the, on the holodeck on the Enterprise in Next Generation. And how they did it was they only built a small section of the duplicate bridge and then they filled in the rest of it using old film clips from the original episode. So... Kind of cool how they made that episode work, and it's kind of cool that I actually still have this officially authorized film cell from Star Trek The Next Generation. It's probably priceless. I also think it's time for a quick update on my agent search. Since I uh, mentioned it last, 
I have ended up with scripts out to four different agents waiting patiently to hear from any or all of them. This is when the waiting game hits <laughs> really hard. First of all, you send out your query letters and then you wait to see if anyone's going to respond. In my case, uh, four, well, actually five did. One of the five immediately didn't work out, which is fine. But then the other four, I've submitted scripts to at their request. And now I'm in the long waiting game to hear what they think of the scripts that I sent them. So fingers crossed, if anything new develops, I will be sure to report it here. But the point is the agent search has not yet borne fruit, but I am confident that it will. Now for today's unsold pitch to Star Trek The Next Generation. As I was going through these pitch documents, I was realizing that at least with the pitches that I have saved, I have definitely focused in my Star Trek pitches on data, Picard, Riker, and Geordi. Somehow, Worf, Dr. Crusher, Counselor Troy, and young Wesley Crusher uh, somehow have all been left out <laughs> from the looks of it from my Star Trek pitches. That may not be true. I may still uncover some things from them, but that's the way it looks. So because of that, I am going to read today the one Dr. Crusher pitch that I have been able to lay my hands on. As usual, this is the first time I'm reading it in over 20 years, so I have no idea what to expect. All I know is that at the top of the page, I have written Crusher number two. So again, I don't know if that signifies that this is the second Crusher story that I have pitched, or if it means that this is the second story I'm pitching out of four in one of my ongoing regular pitches to the Star Trek producers. So at the top of page one of Crusher number two, I have written the pitch line, and here goes. Crusher is called upon to be a surrogate mother to a being with the body of an adult, but the blank mind of an infant, who seems to have been banished at birth to the isolation of deep space. Exclamation mark. I was apparently very enthused about this story at the time. Uh, what do you think? Is that enticing? Is that, uh, does that grab you enough to want to hear the whole story? I hope so, because I'm going to read the whole story. A couple notes on this pitch line, though. If I was doing this again, I would definitely make some changes. I don't think it's right to say the blank mind of an infant. Having raised four kids, I can definitely tell you that infants do not have blank minds. So I would definitely change that. It may affect how well the story works in the end. I don't know. At any rate, sounds intriguing. Let's get into it. Here is the teaser. New Crusher Story Kiko and Miles O'Brien are in sickbay with their baby for the baby's regular checkup. Their talk about children leads Crusher to reveal that she suffers from the occasional pain of empty nest syndrome. So apparently this episode would come after Wesley has already taken his leave of, of the show as one of the regulars. As the O'Briens leave, Crusher is summoned to the bridge where Picard asks for her analysis of a life reading the ship's sensors have just picked up. They are shocked when the view screen reveals the signs to be coming from a humanoid body, naked, alive, and floating through space. End teaser. Act 1. The body is beamed aboard, and Crusher finds that the humanoid, an androgen nearing adulthood, is encased in and kept alive by a fantastic transparent placenta, Immediately upon beaming to the ship, its system shows signs of strain. Its body cannot tolerate the ship's artificial gravity, 
and so Crusher has it taken to an anti-gravity chamber where it can be observed under conditions that are safe for it. Crusher wants to examine the being immediately and sets about converting the anti-grav chamber to a makeshift sickbay. Upon examination in the anti-grav chamber, Crusher finds that all life signs are normal, except for the complete absence of natural immunizing agents. This suggests to Crusher that the child's immune system has never been activated and the horrifying possibility that it has been encased in this placenta since birth. Before she can explore this further, the placenta begins to separate from the child's body, and Crusher must quickly seal off the antigrav chamber to make it a completely sterile environment. The shedding of the placenta causes the child's eyes to flutter open, and it is suddenly conscious in the chamber, conscious and terrified. It panics, twisting herself about in the sterile anti-gravity chamber, trying to find escape. Horrified at the situation in which she has placed this creature, Crusher hurries to the aperture of the chamber and tries to calm the child with her voice and her eyes and an open hand upon the glass. The child responds, locking its frightened eyes onto Crusher's and trying to touch her hand. One of Crusher's assistants remarks that her medical tricorder is receiving input from the placenta that now floats about in the chamber with the child. It seems to be a message. Crusher will not leave the child, so she tells her assistant to give the message to the ship's computer for a translation, and a moment later the translation comes. Quote, her name is Dree. Please dispose of her. Unquote. Crusher looks into the child's frightened eyes and repeats the name Dree. End Act 1. Act 2. In the ready room, Crusher reports her progress to the other officers. The girl Dree is sleeping now. That's the only time Crusher dares leave her. She is being fed intravenously while asleep and seems to be perfectly healthy. Artificial gravity is being slowly introduced into her environment and medication is being administered to awaken her dormant autoimmune system. In addition, hormones are being administered to bring her musculoskeletal development in line with that of a normal Earth adolescent. When she is ready for Earth gravity and safe from infection, Crusher hopes to bring her out of isolation for brief periods of time so that she can be taught to communicate, and when that is accomplished, perhaps they can learn something about her origins. To that end, Data shares his findings about the girl's remarkable placenta, describing it as the perfect spaceship, a living, growing vessel that can keep its occupant alive and safe forever. Data agrees with Crusher's opinion that Dree has been contained in this vessel since very soon after birth and has grown up in the ultimate isolation. Riker and LaForge report that the language used in Dree's message is a very common one in a certain sector of the Federation and that Dree's trajectory when discovered cannot accurately be traced back to a point of origin. In addition, the use of the pronoun her in the message, despite Dree's obvious androgyny, suggests an imperfect translation which further clouds the trail. In other words, they cannot as yet determine who sent Dree out into space. This all gives rise to a confounding problem. The placenta is the creation of a remarkably advanced and sophisticated civilization, and yet the profound isolation to which the girl Dree has been subjected and the cold-blooded request to dispose of her strike them all as horrifically barbaric. When Dree awakes, floating in the antigrav chamber, Troy observes Crusher's interaction with the girl. Troy reports to Crusher that Dree fears everyone but Crusher, and Crusher can't hide a certain amount of pleasure that she feels over this. 
Troy can also feel the way Dree's loneliness and fear are stirring Crusher's maternal instincts. And Crusher admits that she too is aware of it and is not fighting it. And here I have a parenthetical comment in the border of this page. I wrote, Emphasize here the cruelty of Dree's isolation and the role it plays in this arousal of Crusher's protective instincts. The conversation is interrupted by a noise from Dree inside the chamber. Dree has stayed close to Crusher throughout and has been watching and listening closely. She repeats the noise again and again to a mystified Crusher, until finally Troy smiles brightly and tells Crusher that Dree is trying to say, Beverly. End Act 2. Act 3. Several weeks have passed, and Dree is developing just as Crusher hoped she would. She is now tolerating near-Earth gravity, and her now active immune system is more virile than any Crusher has ever encountered. As for communication, Dree can manage an approximation of Beverly and name a few objects, but progress is extremely slow, and for Crusher, disappointing. Dree's mind is a virtual blank, At 20, she has long since passed the optimal age for learning such things. Nonetheless, Dree and Crusher have become close and spend most of their time together. Meanwhile, Data has been devoting his time to an analysis of the fantastic placenta in which Dree arrived. The Enterprise officers are all anxious to have their questions about Dree answered, and the fact that the device was able to transmit information upon Dree's arrival has Data and the others convinced that it may hold even more information. Despite this hope, Data finds himself absolutely stymied by the technology of the placenta. Crusher has discovered that Dree is happiest when she can see the stars. They are, after all, the only home she has ever known. Crusher arranges so that Dree's antigrav, now low-grav, chamber can project a holographic star field when Dree wishes, and Dree spends a great deal of time gazing at the stars. This gives Picard the idea that the star field Dree chooses to look at might reveal her home star. With Crusher's patient encouragement and assistance, Dree eventually points out her home star, the star that she has watched steadily for 20 years. With growing anticipation, Data and Riker search through their star maps to find the star that Dree has identified as her own. And Picard, Troy, and Crusher contemplate how they will approach the barbarians who have sent Dree into space. They are all surprised when the star is identified and found to have only one small, uninhabited planet. End Act 3. Act 4. Now more puzzled than ever, but convinced that Dree has identified the correct star, Picard and his officers set off for the star RS-257. Finding that every bit they learn about Dree brings them more questions than answers, Crusher has redoubled her efforts to communicate with the girl. Dree has now developed enough that she can room in with Dr. Crusher in her quarters, and they spend a great deal of time attempting to communicate with each other. Crusher has found that since Dree's mind is a clean slate, she must teach her both words and the concepts and ideas that underlie them. For instance, to find out what Dree knows about her home, Crusher must try to teach her about her own homes, Earth and the Enterprise. In order to find out what Dree knows about her family and her background, Crusher must teach her about her own family. This particular concept, family, proves to be especially troublesome. The more Crusher tries to teach Dree what a family is, the more confused Dree becomes, until Crusher comes to the upsetting conclusion that Dree has neither mother nor father nor family of any sort. 
As Dree's mystery becomes more and more insoluble, Crusher, Picard, and Troy attempt to come up with an explanation for Dree that fits the scant facts. They are left with few possibilities. Dree is an orphan of some kind. That much seems clear. Dree is an artificial creature, perhaps. Dree is a threat, presumably to those who banished her at birth. They all hope that they will find some answers on the barren planet that orbits RS-257. As they puzzle over these possibilities, Data announces that he has cracked the mystery of the placenta, and everyone gathers in his lab to hear what he has to say. Data explains that he has discovered within the placenta a computer-like device that in physical terms seems almost not to exist. He is rather amazed that he has discovered this device. It is so well hidden. Data announces that the computer bears a message about Dree, and he plays it on the view screen. A woman's weary face appears and repeats the earlier message, asking Dree's finder to dispose of the girl. She identifies herself as Dree and says that she is immortal and wishes to die. For endless millennia, as far back as she can recall, she has been born, has lived, died, and then been reborn. The Dree who is now aboard the Enterprise is the latest incarnation, and the Dree on the viewfinder expresses her hope that she will also be the last. End Act 4 Act 5 It is now clear to Crusher and the others that there is no barbaric tormentor to be brought to justice. Dree herself, with millennia of accumulated knowledge, built the placenta, exiled herself into endless space, and wishes herself dead. Crusher has decided that for the present at least this information should be kept from their Dree, whose isolated upbringing has, as it was intended, kept her ignorant of her previous lives. The computer in the placenta has proven to be an astonishingly sophisticated device, able to interact with its user and answer every question that Crusher and the others can put to it. The recording of the previous tree explains that she has lived endlessly on the lonely planet in orbit around RS-257, living, dying, then rising again as another Dree, her previous lives revealed to her by the memories locked away in the fantastic computer she has built for herself on the planet. She has learned and thought and learned and thought until she can stand it no longer, but she has found that her particular spark of life cannot be extinguished. Her ultimate desperate plan to free herself was to build the placenta and send the next tree out into space in the hopes that something would happen. What it might be, she can only hope and guess. Perhaps someone would find her and heed the message to dispose of her, and perhaps her immortality would fade once she was free of her planet, and perhaps this death the death at some unseen stranger's hand, would be final and permanent. Or, failing that, she would at least be freed of the memories of her previous lives. It was, as she admits, a desperate, improbable plan, born of endless frustration. And yet Crusher points out the fact that Dree sent this program, this small piece of her previous selves, along with herself, proves that even in her desperation she is not entirely at peace with the idea of giving up her life. As the Enterprise approaches Dree's planet, the officers are in the ready room discussing her plight, watching her sleeping in Crusher's quarters. They are all moved by her story and find themselves completely unsure of what they should do. Crusher has grown to love Dree's innocence and feels that she should not be told of her origins. She believes that Dree deserves a chance to forget her immortality, if only for this lifetime. She does a good job of convincing the others, but Data feels a duty to present his opinion. 
Data believes that everyone deserves to know everything there is to know about his or her origins. He feels that it would be unjust to deny Dree her vast accumulation of knowledge. Then Worf surprises everyone by voicing an even stronger opinion. An orphan himself, Worf insists that denying Dree her heritage is immoral, even if she herself requested it. He points out that Dree's previous incarnations are in effect her family, and that the Dree who is sleeping in Dr. Crusher's quarters has not been given a choice about whether or not she wishes to be a part of that family. He maintains that the officers of the Enterprise cannot be party to denying a living being this choice. Crusher goes to Dree and tells her, the best she can, that they have arrived at her home and that it is time for her to meet her family. Dree understands and seems happy. Crusher turns to Picard and requests permission to accompany Dree to the planet. He says that the Enterprise will be in this area again in a month's time, and he offers to let her remain with Dree until their return. Crusher happily accepts and prepares to take Dree home. The End Well, yeah, so that's my first time reading this um, since sometime in the mid-1990s. And I like it a lot. I think this may be so far my favorite of all the uh, unsold pitches that I've been uh, presenting here on Farfetched. There are some sloppy bits here, like I don't seem to be able to make up my mind whether Dree should be androgynous or a, or a female. Uh, I would definitely want to fix that. I think sticking with the androgynous, uh, the androgynous line is probably the best way to go. Also, the indecision about what Dree's age might be, her equivalent age as a human, it started out being 13, but then I crossed those both out and replaced them with 20. I'm not sure what kind of a difference that makes. I think maybe a younger age might make Dree's situation more poignant, I think. So I, if I were to go back and try this story again, I would definitely maintain Dree's androgyny and her apparent physical age uh, as being closer to 13 uh, than 20. Yeah, another thing I'm not comfortable with is this idea of uh, injecting Dree with hormones uh, once she's in sickbay. I'm not really sure where that came from, and it just doesn't sound right right now. It sounds kind of creepy and invasive, and I don't like it, so I would definitely get rid of that. On the other hand, I have a new favorite part of this storyline, and that is at the end when Worf speaks up. He's been non-existent throughout the entire episode, and then in that final briefing room scene, Worf gets up and gives this very, what I think, well, I didn't write the speech, but I'm hoping it would have been an extremely eloquent speech about the fact that they have no right to interfere with this, with the destiny of an intelligent being. I think that's very interesting. Reading it just now, it totally caught me by surprise. I do not remember having written that uh, or, or what my intentions would have been when I, when I wrote it. But rereading it now, blind, after 25 years, I really like it. I think it's kind of a super cool moment for Worf. So those are my reactions to the um, script elements there's something more going on here, though, that has really kind of hit me unexpectedly. As I said, I, I haven't looked at this script. I haven't read it. I haven't even remembered it since the mid-1990s. 
And when I was reading the introduction in Act 1, the introductory description of Dree, uh, and I'll quote right here, Crusher finds that all life signs are normal except for the complete absence of natural immunizing agents. This suggests to Crusher that the child's immune system has never been activated and the horrifying possibility that it has been encased in this placenta since birth. That really hit me hard because um, I'm not even sure now how much of my uh, cancer story I've related in this podcast. I've I've intended to keep it to a minimum, um, but I know I've talked about it at least a little bit here and there. So this last year, I underwent something called a bone marrow transplant, which is a misleading name. Bone marrow transplant makes it sound as though they're going to take um, bone marrow from someone and stick it into your bones. That's not what it is at all. The more technical and more accurate term for it is an autologous blood transfusion, in which my doctors boost my production of white blood cells to supercharge my immune system. And then when a certain threshold is reached, a certain, a certain target number of white blood cells in my blood, they draw some of that blood from my body, put it in a bag, put it in a freezer, and save it for me for later. Once that's done, I undergo what my doctor described as the most potent dose of chemotherapy that your body can withstand. So after, after this blood was, was taken from my body and put in the freezer, I went through about a week of this super intense chemotherapy. At the end of that, they take my blood, which is rich with white blood cells, and they put it back into my body. Why do they do this? Because the chemotherapy has completely wiped out my immune system. It has completely wiped out every vaccination I've ever had in my life. It has left me essentially naked to my environment. And it's been a really weird thing to deal with and to get used to. After they put the blood back into me, that took place on December 6th. They call that my rebirth day because that's when I've got my new blood, my new old blood back. And immediately the new old blood starts to produce more white blood cells. And the idea is that in time, over the period of several months, my immune system will come back. So after I got that transfusion on December 6th, my rebirth day, I had to go to the hospital every day for eight hours uh, just to be monitored, uh, just to make sure that I wasn't going to have any adverse reactions to the procedure and make sure that my white blood cell count was coming back. That all went really well. I still am in the process, and it's going to take about another year to get all my old immunizations back. So far, I've gotten... Since March, I've gotten, um, of course, all the COVID stuff, and then I've gotten the two uh, vaccinations for shingles. I recently got my flu vaccination. It's ahead of schedule. Normally, we get those in uh, like October, November when flu season comes around, but it was important that I get it right away. So I got the flu vaccination. I got a vaccination that will protect me from pneumonia and I get a second shot of that next month 
it's all very complicated and I have a very lengthy and complicated timetable for when I get each of these immunizations back. And I mean, it's everything, polio, mumps, everything I got immunized against as a child. It's all gone, all wiped out by that, by that transfusion. So to read that description of Dree in this story just kind of hit me like a sledgehammer. I don't really think about the whole medical process all that much on a daily basis, just because it's. I'm just so glad that it's all behind me that I just don't want to think about it or dwell on it. But all of a sudden, reading this story pitch, it's just hit me. Like I said, it's just hit me like a. It's hit me like a phaser on stun. That's what it's done, and it's a very weird feeling. And I'm probably going to have to spend the rest of the day and night processing all of this. It's just so weird that 25 years ago, I wrote a story where this was like one of the defining characteristics of one of my one of my characters. That's just bizarre. Uh, so I don't know where to go <laughs> from there. I guess that's it for this episode. I need to recover a little and I'll be back next time with yet another reading of a story pitch, an unsold story pitch to Star Trek The Next Generation. It looks from my pile, it looks like I'm about halfway through. I still have lots and lots. Some of them are full-out story treatments, several pages long, like the one I just read to you in this episode. Some of them are just one-liners. So on one of these episodes of Farfetched, I'm just going to do about 20 or 30 or more (laughs) one-line pitches and uh, see how they all sound. Well, I hope you'll join me for the next Farfetched. Until then, this has been Mark O'Connell. Thanks for listening.